Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 5th, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, Associate Editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Senior Writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And joining us today, one of my oldest friends, pundit, businessman, consultant, Daniel Cass. Hi, Dan. Hey, good to be with you guys. So, um, Dan, you published uh, an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal on Saturday in which you posited in a fascinating way that we, in 2021, are we are enjoying the 50th anniversary of the modern world. That um, even though if you look, if you consider the calendar and you think about milestones, 1971 does not appear on any calendar as a milestone year. You know, there, there was no, there was no, men didn't walk on the moon for the first time. You know, the internet didn't open. You know, the polio vaccine wasn't found. World War II didn't end. The Vietnam War, nothing. All of that, like it's not, you don't look at it and say, oh, 1971, that was really the year that everything changed. But according to you, kind of, it was the year everything changed. So can you uh, lay it out for us? Uh, well, thank you very much. And it's good to be here. Uh, my theory was to write something at the beginning of the new year um, and look 50 years back at what happened. I've actually been thinking about 1971 for a while. I'm always suspicious when people try to ascribe uh, extreme profundity and importance to any given year. Because if you look at any of these Google timelines of what happens, it is amazing what happens on any given year. But I contend 1971 was different um, and different for lots of reasons I could go into. But in that article that you mentioned, um, I mentioned five things that not only were important in their time, but actually became more important in time. And over the past, past five decades, you keep coming back to it. And I'll just mention them quickly. One was Kissinger's trip to China in secret, which opened the doors to China. The other was, another one was an FCC decision that allowed MCI, a company nobody had heard of, to actually introduce competition into long distance telephone calling and challenge AT&T. A third was the opening of Disney World, something now everybody knows about then, but at the time was uncertain what it would be. Um, a fourth was the creation of Intel's um, 4004 chip, a tiny mark in technology, but it was really the beginning of the computer age. And the fifth was the decision by President Nixon to end the Bretton Woods Agreement, something hardly anyone remembers every time, but it was the governing rule of um, international finance that allowed any country to exchange gold for American dollars or American dollars for gold. And that was closed and it was considered in many ways afterwards the biggest economic disaster move ever made since the Great Depression. All those things happened in 1971. I can discuss more of them in detail, but my theory is there are very few years where you see five decisions, each of which had enormous 50 year consequences. So let's 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 unpack this a little bit because I think arguably, uh, given the list that you uh, enumerated there, it was uh, it was this weird combination of Intel's chip 
and the MCI and the decision to allow MCI into the federally mandated monopoly uh, on long distance telephony. If you put those together, that's the modern world, right? That's the computer, the personal computer combined with the opening of telephony. I think, I think when you said long distance telephony, you probably lost half your audience. Um, I, I think this is all about growth, globalization, the role of government and the role of the innovator. And whether it's Walt Disney or the engineers at Intel or the idea that China could be a partner of us, all of those still, by the way, seen as either controversial or only one point, they all laid the seeds for something a lot bigger. Now, again, you can go to any other year and say, well, this happened in 68 or this happened in 1995. Um, I'm an amateur historian with the emphasis on amateur. Um, I have a kind of conspiracy cluster theory of history that things happen in short bursts of time. And in 71, it is kind of weird that all this stuff was crammed in together. By the way, there were other things. NASDAQ started, the first Starbucks opened. Um, the 26th Amendment is passed, moving the voting age from 21 to 28. Charles Schwab, the first discount broker, starts. Uh, the Pentagon Papers are published in the New York Times. Um, there's actually lots of interesting things that happen, and that's true of many years. But 71, the number of transformational things that we're still living off of today, whether it's monetary policy, China, or computers, you actually see the roots in 71. It was a year um, that, you know, in a way, was the formal end of the 60s and a kind of retreat of a lot of things that preceded. Can I make a, uh, you guys are emphasizing all these, you know, financial and technological innovations, but as a kid who was born a few years after 71 in Florida, I am the Disney World generation and the the transformative nature of what Walt Disney World, that theme park did, not just for the state of Florida, but to the idea of what a childhood entertainment experience should be really was remarkable, right? You go into Disney World and it was unlike anything else and it was designed to be unlike anything else. And Walt Disney's vision was all encompassing. They literally designed the way you stood in line as a way to prevent you from becoming too bored. They, they had all these innovations for line waiting, for food service, for, for constant in, in entertainment, no matter what you were doing while strolling all, along the park, in a way that actually now, looking back, uh, makes our constant surveillance that the technology has enabled us uh, to endure. Uh, th there were early precursors of that in Disney World. Like everything was a, you were inside the entertainment in a way that previous, you know, a state fair or previous amusement parks never pulled off. And it grew from there, right? Epcot Center was added on, the movie studios, and, it, and, and Disney is now this global entity, this entertainment giant and it all a lot of that started in florida in 1971 so i was so happy when i read dan's piece i'm like yes florida getting the shot at disney world <laughs> well so, you know it's everything you say is right um i would emphasize this about disney world um disneyland had been around since 1955 and was a very very successful theme park um but i think you got onto something that made it different which was to use a you know cliche of the last number of years it was scale um, the sheer size he went and bought, I think, um, I think that uh, Disney World, Disneyland in California was on 16 acres. 
he bought 27,000 acres of land in central groves, Florida, yeah, yeah. orange groves and swamps. And the original Disney World had occupied only a fraction of that. But the idea was, we're going to build something so huge that will encompass every type of experience, which today is not only what Disney is, it's what all entertainment has been. Global, multidimensional, movies, experience, games, hotels, um, visits, sports. And that found its seeds in 1971. It was a concept that didn't exist before that. You know, um, I read a book uh, last year called uh, Disney's Land by a, by a historian named Richard Snow, an absolutely extraordinary por- portrait of the construction of Disneyland, the conceptualization and the construction of Disneyland. And what's interesting, if you compare that, because it started in the, in the early 1950s uh, to Disney World, was that it was like a kind of giant <clears throat> train erector set. <clears throat> it was a hobbyist fantasy come to life. And Walt Disney was the hobbyist. He had this idea. Everything that was done had to be built specially for it. The train, there were sort of train enthusiasts. There were the rides, which no one had really done before. It was also based on Tivoli Gardens in Denmark or in, or in uh, Sweden. I can't remember where Tivoli Gardens is. But that, um, but that basically it was a kind of personal, obsessional notion t- taken off from Knott's Berry Farm uh, and then taken to this new level, right? But it was hand-hewn. That's what's so amazing about it. It was sort of hand-hewn and, and they were inventing things, rules and park stuff that no one had ever seen before. Jump 20 years later and you have an understanding <laughs> that what's being done <clears throat> is literally transformational. Like the Disney World plan was a 20 to 30 year plan. They revised it, they amended it and what they thought was going to be the central core of it, which was Epcot really turned out not to be the central core of it, but it was this understanding that something new could be done to create this total experience that has become the, it is the nature of all, uh, all entertainment, that its goal essentially is either virtually or actually to have you exist inside a framework like Disney World. IP, you know, like uh, if you're going to see a movie, you want that movie to be a nest of 20 movies, like a Russian doll in which you can sort of sink yourself for multiple years and stuff like that. And so um, that's also a kind of image of the transformation of the world economy from something that was handmade and accidental to something that became like that, that uh, idea of the pencil, you know, that... Uh, Nobody knows, it takes a thousand people to make a pencil and nobody knows how to make a pencil. You couldn't make a pencil from scratch anymore because you, the goods that go into making a pencil, it's like you can't make anything now without this kind of global economy, global vision that you say would started in 1971 in some real sense. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm sure there are other examples you could find from other years. What's weird about 71 is it is the creation of all these, you know, what we now call platform businesses or platform ideas. And I think this is what you're getting at, John, an idea that other people build upon. 
So that's obviously true of Starbucks, true of computing. Um, in a weird way, is true of the financial system, which is what what is it that the United States monetary policy can do? And one of the things they can do is wreck the economy. And the platform that eventually got you know our modern uh, Federal Reserve became one that is used to having a role in the economy that never had up until that point. These are I want to talk about these cross currents and it kind of. It- demonstrates how little we know about what the future is going to look like in in the moment because this in 71 this was the year that nixon declared himself a keynesian right i'm a keynesian now um and out of these uh these monetary policy innovations at camp david eventually arose the wage and price controls to you know combat inflation which would culminate in like by 1973 these traumatic images of farmers killing their own chickens and you know destroying their livestock and you know just a really dysfunctional economy, but it was kind of popular at the time, right? Yeah. The press loved it. And he went into 1972 writing this banner of wage and price controls and to combat inflation because inflation was really terrible. So people liked that, but they weren't too, too jazzed about the deregulation of the telecoms, which is this MCI thing would eventually presage this dramatic deregulation of telecommunications industries. And with the future, the far future as it were, but not too long, at least, you know, a decade, decade and a half later would, would demonstrate is that the future wasn't in wage and price controls and it wasn't with protectionist trade policy and it was with deregulating of telecommunications industries and half a dozen other industries um, culminating in the you know, rise of Margaret Thatcher and the, uh, and the uh, resting away of the, the kind of state control that had been, the, had been the, the presumed default for getting to economic growth and equitable economic growth. And everybody seems to have forgotten, at least in my generation and a little younger, what what the telecommunications industry really looked like at that point. If they if they had experienced a time in which you didn't even own the telephone in your house, I feel like they would have a different opinion of the kinds of the kind of equity that government and government controls actually delivers in practice. I mean, there was no telecommunications industry. That yeah, is the it, truth. There was, there was the government and there was Ma Bell and that was it. There was no industry per se. Yeah, and, and basically the phone that you had in 1971 looked you know, marginally different than the phone you had in 1930. You know, may not have had that cranky mechanism, but it had a dial and maybe push button phones were introduced just about then, but that was about it. It was a blunt instrument. You could That's use it exactly. as a murder weapon. My favorite, yeah. <laughs> yes, my favorite fact about the telecom age is that the fax machine somehow was incept people think it was sort of incepted into being around 1983 1984 suddenly everybody had a fax machine and uh, you could transmit documents uh, send them through phone lines and this was just revolutionary and sort of led to email all kinds of things it broke the bond it broke the barrier of what the phone could do but the fax machine had existed since the early 1920s. It was, in fact, the way that newspaper photography was transmitted, the way AP sent photographs to newspapers was over something called the Thermofax machine, which you had in your newspaper. It cost thousands and thousands of dollars, and the transmission of each photograph cost an enormous amount of money to receive it. Why? Because it had to go over long distance phone lines, which were regulated in a way to make the the traffic and the transfer of information over them incredibly expensive. So once that 
price collapse, the long distance price collapsed. That was when you could start doing this thing that you could have done in 1926. Everybody in the world could have had a fax machine in his house in 1926 if long distance rates hadn't been set at this abnormal level for reasons that are not entirely clear. Uh, and and so it, it's an interesting thing that that what one thing that we learned from the from not only from the breakup of AT and T, which really started with this MCI decision in 1971, was how how much government involvement in the economy retarded innovation to the extent that an innovation that had existed for 50 years was unavailable to normal people because of a prohibitive cost structure that was imposed by government. So, so I don't want to lose one point in this. I mean, the true breakup of AT&T came almost a decade later because there was all this um, litigation. I thought what was important about 1971 for telecom was it took this tiny startup, MCI, which had been around for, for seven or eight years, but it had this guy, William McCowan, who was um, not the founder. I think he, was the, he became the CEO and was the leader of it, who had this idea that I've got an idea his idea was, why are we paying so much for long distance? And I'm going to take on the biggest company in America that controls this. So there were startups in the 60s, but there were very, very few David versus Goliath stories, which of course now is the story of all modern business. And that to me was the real departure. Um, and it would take another decade before MCI got huge funding from Michael Milken. But the idea that you would go to court challenge somebody else's power and you were a small company and challenging the biggest company that there was, that was new. Fascinating. You know, Abe. Dan, I think one of the things that was so interesting about your piece was that in all these revolutionary developments, I think with the exception of ending Bretton Woods, the real impact um, couldn't be seen or felt for some years down the line, right? Um, which goes to show that we don't really know, you know, today, and, and in general, we, we, we sort of wait on the, on, the, um, on the big news stories that happen, and we declare them revolutionary, when they may not, in fact, be, you know, like, like uh, uh, the, the, the development of the 3D printer, um, which I, you know, which people sort of treated like kind of the moon landing. Um, in some way, or self-driving cars, which may sort of never come to fruition or something, you know. And, and in truth, it, it takes things that happen under the radar um, some time to sort of wind through the economy and the culture and, and then um, bear fruit. Oh, I think this is a profound point. I mean, we tend to fix on the things that are um, shocking big events. So people look at 68 and see Robert Kennedy killed and Martin Luther King killed which are traumatic and important historical events, their long-term consequence is a little harder to articulate. They weren't itself game-changing. Same with the landing on the moon, a huge event. It's long-term consequence, less certain. Um, these are exactly as you suggest. They're kind of hidden seeds that have been planted. And only now in retrospect, we go back and see, hey, all these things that shaped us actually found their root in a funny, year right so like in 1946 when essentially the semiconductor was i believe invented in 1946 nobody knew that the invention of the semiconductor was going to be the signature fact of the second half of the 20th century 
you couldn't have known somehow because its application wasn't wasn't clear. It was an engineering. It was the it was the answer to an engineering problem that was solved by these guys, and they solved it. One of them was like you know one of them was a crazy Nazi lunatic, and he solved it. William Shockley, yeah. um, but. He didn't know. They didn't know what they had. They didn't know what the consequences were going to be. And in some ways, the very largeness of the uh, mission to the moon uh, obscured the fact that everything that was going to be important that came out of it was going to be an ancillary, not the thing in itself, but some ancillary offshoot of it. You know, it's sort of like when the guy, the guy at 3M invented the post-it note, which sort of is probably the most significant thing aside from scotch tape that 3M ever invented, he was somebody who was looking for some way to put something up in his cubicle that wouldn't make marks on the wall. I mean, you know, and so he invented it for for himself. This is the nature of innovation that when you look at one, when somebody announces a massive innovation, right? Like the Segway, right? Or uh, something like that. it, It never does what it's supposed to do. But, so you know, it, in, yeah, okay. It reminds me of one of my favorite jokes, which is this electricity thing, Mr. Edison, is fascinating, but what does it have to do with my cheese shop? <laughs> I mean, it's, um, what, yeah. Most, I'm, I'm just, you can't help, but it, it makes you wonder what sort of hidden thing, you know, what developments now are going to have these kind of long-term consequences. And I wonder, Dan, if you, since you've been thinking about this, if you also, you know, try on your, uh, amateur futurist hat and um w- w- you know what that's a great idea yeah. let me let's let me uh let's get to it in a second uh while i uh talk to you uh again about our favorite new podcast uh post corona uh hosted by uh my friend dan's old friend dan senor uh a uh new york city uh, businessman writer author of startup nation and the host of this podcast that seeks to address the question of what America and the world are going to look like uh, after we get through the vaccination and we get through Corona and have to look at the world in a new way and and how it will be. Uh, I, I, I told everybody yesterday about the, the current uh, edition of Post-Corona with Neil Ferguson, the historian who locates the historical analogy to our present moment not in the spanish flu of 1918 but in a pan but in a flu pandemic uh in uh 1957-58 where there was also a historic historically fast vaccine devised developed and implemented apparently in a better way than we did now uh and ferguson goes into how this happened and why we might be looking at the wrong model uh, I did a, I did one of these episodes with Dan talking about the future of Broadway and New York City. There was another one with uh, Raihan Salam and Nicole Gelinas of the Manhattan Institute, also on on New York. It's a great podcast. I really recommend it. Go to the iTunes Store, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Post Corona with Dan Senor, you will thank me for this advice. Um, okay, so Dan, futurism. Um, I'm no futurist, so I'd be interested <laughs> in what anybody else says. But I mean, sort of the, the conventional wisdom now, which is not necessarily wrong, is um, 
you're going to spend time on anything that's going to affect the future, it's going to be artificial intelligence and machine learning and robots and software as a service. And I'm sure all of that is true. But the 71 model, as I think Abe pointed out, means um, there's something else going on that we ought to be looking somewhere else, not where the light is shining. Um, you know, if I had to guess, it would be something to do with um, land, either where we mm. live or how land is used, um, something to do with travel, uh, which has gone through its own disruptive year and may lay the foundation for some other kind of travel. Um, health is an obvious example, but maybe so obvious that maybe we shouldn't count on it so much as a game changer. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think crypto is already, you know, that die has been cast on that. So there'll be some sort of monetary thing. But I, you know, I think what you, what you notice, um, um, you know, I'd say one other thing. I, I do think 71, even though all the developments I mentioned were kind of years in the making, they didn't suddenly flower. They did follow another year, 70, where a lot of stuff just kind of ended. Um, you know, I, when I first started looking at this, I thought, hmm, what happened in 70? It's also kind of amazing. Uh, uh, Janis Joplin dies, Jimi Hendrix die, the Beatles break up, cigarette advertising is banned on TV. So like the party is over. Um, the, uh, the Vietnam protests reach their lowest point at Kent State. So, I mean, it really does seem like people were ready for some kind of reset. So I think all of it has to do with some kind of behavioral changes that we don't know rather than in the high tech stuff, which will be with us forever. But I don't think those are the big things to watch for. I mean, it, it's, um, and you won't know when it happens. That's the other thing. There's some weird, there are these moments of transition and they, they come upon you and they've happened before you understand the revolutionary nature of the change. Like there's a moment 15 years after the uh, introduction of the ATM machine, which itself, by the way, was an accident, was a kind of weird thing where uh, Citibank said, here, there's this new technology. There's this kind of machine you can use where you can get money out of, you, we could figure it out. Uh, and they, they put some guy, some executive vice president, that nobody liked particularly apparently in charge of the ATM machine to see what he could do with it. His name was John Reed and he became the, he became the CEO of city because of course the ATM was revolutionary, but then, you know, suddenly you introduce them and in New York city, people are standing on lines at 10 o'clock at night to get money out of the bank because of course you couldn't get money. You couldn't get cash on the weekends unless you went to a liquor store to cash a check. This was a life change, but it's 15, 16, 17 years later that people don't give a second thought about not touching their paycheck. They get a paycheck. It goes into a bank. They never touch it. They never see it. They trust that the amount of money that was in that check is automatically going to be deposited in their account and will be there without a second thought. They, they, they stop balancing their checkbooks because they trust that the machine will do it better than they will. But, there, but this is where, where Dan's point about 
you know, the kind of the, the what if questions about human nature and human behavior really come into play because there was something that happened with the transition to acceptance of things like uh, digital banking that we have now uh, that the ATM uh, was a precursor of. In, I remember at our local bank, they put up all these cardboard cutouts of tellers, what the bank tellers usually look like, and surrounded the first ATM machine with them so people wouldn't freak out that it was a machine dispensing their cash. There was this need for a sort of human stand-in because human behavior suggested that trust required a face-to-face -face interaction with another person. And we have gotten rid of that. I think that brings a lot of potential harms for our future as, as much as it does right. conveniences for our present. You know, it's interesting only at least psychologically is that they still do that some version of that with digital casinos um uh there are casinos where if you sit down at the you know the the computerized uh, uh blackjack table or whatever there is a, a a screen with the dealer um right <laughs> smiling you know you know but um uh in his um in his book, An Empire of Wealth, our friend uh, John Still Gordon, who contributes to the commentary blog, makes this point about the early 19th century, that the key moment in the early 19th century uh, that really divided America and created the first populist revolt in the United, successful populist revolt in the United States around Andrew Jackson was currency, which is, of course, an idea, whereas Jackson was a representative of the old barter economy where you had a, an object and you traded it for an object. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't have a piece of paper that represented an asset that you could hand to somebody else who would then accept it as a representation of value. And it was psychologically and emotionally and intellectually almost impossible for people to get this idea in their heads. And that was why there was the revolt against the national bank and, and this whole notion that currency was an evil. Um, now imagine it's 200 years later, you know, we're now, we're moving inexorably beyond currency into the simple idea of currency being the idea. I mean, what is Venmo? Venmo is, Someone gives you a service, you send, you open an app, you press a button, money goes from you to them, you don't see the money, they don't see the money, they then use it to give it to a third person who doesn't see the money. There is no money. There's no, there's no physical money. And, you know, in, 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 uh, at some point, there will be no physical, there will be no money under the mattress. Introduce um, another boring 1971 idea. Uh, the United Kingdom introduced the decimalization of currency in 1971. Oh my which, God. Which, by the way, yeah, uh, if you're a fan of Anthony Trollope's book, you'll know <laughs> that that was the long lived dream of one of his heroes, Plantagenet Palliser. Um, and 100 years after he wrote 71, they introduced the decimalization of currency. Yes, it was the tragic, that's right, the tragic <laughs> life of when Planty, Planty Pal is Chancellor of the Exchequer and all he cares about is decimal coinage. It's the only thing he cares about. Um, so I'm just saying it's sort of interesting because uh, if you had said to people in, in 2003 that the most significant economic development in the United States in the first 20 years of the 20th century would be a new form of oil extraction, that would come into being in 2007 and turn the United States from a net importer to a net exporter of oil, 
in eight years, people would have said you were insane. Like, what are you talking about? There's going to be a new form of oil extraction. Well, it was I mean, insane that, and that such an outcome would be undesirable. Well, that a lot of people, <laughs> right. I mean, no, I'm just saying that it's a remarkable, that's what I mean when I say you just never know. Like the ATM was this, eh, what is this thing? Let's give it to this guy. Because, it, because our imaginative capacities are, are very limited. I mean, you know, there are people, you know, it's like William Gibson wrote Neuromancer, a novel that w- when I first read it in 1983 was incomprehensible to me. But it's simply a description of what it would be like to live inside uh, uh, the world of the internet where you have an avatar and you're sort of involving yourself with like an ocular. Now it's nothing. But then it was like gibberish. Like I had no idea what it was that he was seeing or what he understood that he captured. And so there's obviously some version of this now. I just, I don't know what it is. And I'm probably uniquely ill-equipped to make any any sense of it. But I mean, two years ago, everybody thought that Elon Musk was on his way to self-implosion, right? He was going to destroy himself. He was smoking dope with Joe Rogan. He was calling people, you know, uh, pedophiles on the internet. He was getting into trouble with the SEC. He was like supposedly doing insider trading on the SEC. And now last six months, suddenly he's going to lead us into the new space future. Which which is right? Is Elon Musk the lunatic, or is he is he Thomas Edison? I I, I don't know. Why they're not both? both. <laughs> they're, they're not distinguishable. American genius or genius generally and eccentricity tend to go hand in hand. Uh, that is that is very true. You know what else is true? I'll tell you what else is true. Mac Weldon sells some pretty great essentials for men. It's a brand that believes in smart designs and high-quality fabrics. Mack Weldon offers a one-stop shop for men's basic socks, shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts. Whatever you need, Mack Weldon has you covered. Unlike the assortment of department store brands that make up your top drawer, all of Mack Weldon's basics have a consistent fit that you can count on. From sock shirts, hoodies, underwear, polos, and active shorts, Mack Weldon promises comfort and a consistent fit. And you're not just going to look great, Mack Weldon. Their underwear, socks, and shirts perform well, too, from working out, going out, going to work, or on a date. Mack Weldon is for everyday life. Mack Weldon offers a range of customized fabrics that can keep up with you no matter what your day looks like. And it has created a totally free loyalty program. Level 1 gets you free shipping for life. Once you reach Level 2 by spending $200, Mack Weldon gives you 20% off every order for the next year. Mack Weldon wants you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair of underwear, you can keep them, and they'll still refund you, no questions asked. That's Mac Weldon, M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Thanks to Mac Weldon for sponsoring the commentary podcast. Hey, John, uh, yeah. I, want, I was wondering if I could just go back to the point Abe raised earlier, which is what would you bet on? Um, I have no idea what you would bet on, but I think there is a one big question. In 71, all these things happened, not accidentally, as we know, in the United States, which was the sort of had become the center of activity and new ideas in the world. Um, I think it's an open question of whether 50 years hence, the United States remains the place where all things happen. And I'm not making a China versus America argument, but there is now a fair amount of debate that even Europe, which has been left behind in the technology age, has now become um, a center for some sort of tech innovation 
the internet, which has been dominate, uh, dominated by American innovation, may actually now become um, something where there's just as much activity, not only in China, but throughout Europe, um, even South America. So, I mean, that might be the kind of platform changing thing that we see. But You know, the, the generally interesting thing about modern innovation, when you talk about the internet and everything that you're, you're, you've sort of highlighted here, is um, that most uh, new industries that you know, were incepted into being uh, over the course of history were of course employment rich, like they needed, what happened was people shifted from agriculture to factories or you know, the, the needs of the new economy were overwhelming and dominating and they changed everything. And a lot of the weirdness of our present economic uh, uh, com complexity is that so much of this ended up not being revolutionary in terms of finding people new ways to work, uh, but in fact, eliminating jobs without creating new ones. I mean, uh, all of middle management in America was kind of displaced by the personal computer without a new middle management necessarily being created in its place, and and uh, we see this, for example, in a country like like Israel, which has gone from being a poor country to being a rich country, in the space of a generation, largely as a result of internet, um, you know, uh, remarkable innovation. But there isn't a lot of employment. I mean, it doesn't. It this 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 field doesn't it hasn't created. A million new jobs in Israel that you know it's necessary for Israelis to shift into in order to that's that's the that's the oddity of of where we are with a lot of these innovations that makes them new and different. No, I mean, look, I think a lot of this depends on whether you're fundamentally a pessimist or an optimist, and whether you view America as in in a slow decline. Or whether America remains the sort of the champion of new ideas, you know whether there'll be jobs and whether um, technology innovation is a good or bad thing for society. Um, I have no I have no idea, um, but I do think um, you know I I do think looking forward the question is whether this is the best place to be if you want to be part of the future. But where where would what place would that be? I mean, that's the, it's, it's like, it's like the, how's your wife compared to what, you know, I mean, every problem we have in America, it's not clear that there are other places that are, I mean, the classic thing about the American rise is of course that we weren't clotted by the same, um, you know, uh, old bodies that clotted up your, the possibility for European innovation. We didn't have the class structure. We didn't have the, the aristocracy, we were a new country that could sort of build itself from scratch without having to deal with old problems. And it's not clear that there's any place like that, with the exception of a place like Israel may, but again, that's in one corner, right? I, I don't, what place is clear of the kinds of difficulties that we have? Or can you divorce the, divorce, uh, the kind of, an attractive climate from an attractive business climate, innovative climate from political liberty uh, and political liberalism. It's sort of an antiquated notion, I think, for sophisticates who don't really, you know, per, who, who take for granted the, you know, the, the, the water in which they swim in Western democracies. But the events in Hong Kong, for example, in 2019, 
and uh, elsewhere demonstrating that the, a desire for political liberty it remains an essential feature of the human condition and that they will jeopardize their economic circumstances in its pursuit um, suggests that this is not something that is going away and it's not going to be a trend that, that will just simply disappear over the course of the 21st century if we're all sedated by technological innovation and economic prosperity. I don't think that's the case. And we can probably will see uh, as much political turmoil in, um, in authoritarian states in, over the course of this century as we had in the last. Well, and it's, it's a useful point given some of the recent news this past week out of China, right? You have the New York Times writing these, you know, basically a, a almost propagandistic puff piece about how great it is if you're Chinese right now. Oh, you can go out. They've controlled the pandemic. It's so excellent. No mention of the internment camps, no mention of any of the violations of human rights, because, you know, I guess that's not going to uh, support the narrative. And then you have one of China's most famous businessmen, Jack Ma, has kind of disappeared, right? He, he said something critical of the regime in the fall, and no one's heard or seen of him since. So there are these 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 sort of strange little almost novelistic moments um, in in our major our looming major competitors uh, current environment that we either deliberately try not to see because it doesn't suit the the sort of neoliberal narrative about uh, certainly the Biden administration narrative about China but it is I think when we look back 50 years from now some of those events are going to be seen as quite compelling. I think most notably the weaker concentration camps and the West's absolute uh, inability to confront what that what they really mean. Also, so what's, you know, go ahead. This is just a small side point, but, you know, in response to this sort of narrative that um, what China did right with the virus that we, that we, that we should have done, um, one of the things China did was OK vaccines before trials. Which was which was the very which was the very thing that the entire media establishment was was certain Donald Trump was going to do to our certain and total death. Yeah, and nobody in China stood up and said, "I'm not going to take that vaccine because I can't trust it." <laughs> I mean, you know, part of the issue here is if you're talking about where where should you be if you want to be part of the future and you shouldn't be in the United States, you should be elsewhere. Is uh, we haven't talked about this. Uh, Nixon, the 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 opening to China as uh, you know, I said that it was the phone and it was MCI and uh, you know uh, that that was more important. But yeah, but arguably, if you if you can locate the China's revolutionary change to the American opening to China, which I, I don't know if you can really, but let's just stipulate that you 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 could. Um, then obviously it's the most important development of 19, 1971 that uh, that yeah. this uh, the beginning of this relationship. But of course that was not on Nixon's or Kissinger's mind at all. They were looking for a counter. They were looking to create the conditions under which there was not a unified communist threat, uh, or to or to hasten the divisions between the Soviet Union and and Maoist China and to, you know, make sure that there was a kind of iron wall between them that we could somehow create uh, the conditions in which they could be rivals and therefore our, our, uh, the threat from the Soviet Union would be lessened because it would also have to look to its east uh, and not just to, to us and to its west. The notion that we would be looking 50 years later at a China that threatened to outdistance us in economic growth 
I mean, I've read I've read Kissinger's memoirs. I see no evidence that that was any such thought was even remotely on anybody's mind. No, because nobody ever thought China could become a pure nation. I think to go back to Noah's point, in 71, political liberty was championed by everybody in the West and envied by the citizens of every in, everywhere else where they didn't have it. That unfortunately is not the situation today, either here at home in the West or in any of the authoritarian um, regimes. And I think we now live in a world, um, and I'm not suggesting this is this is the particular moment or turning point um, where there are questions about political liberty as a as a human good um, and um, enemies of it around. And I think for the first time in 50 years, there's a challenge to that idea. I mean, the oddity, of course, is that is that um, I think Noah Noah is pointing out that that is likely not true within the body politics of these places, but it is true in the intelligentsia that we are we find ourselves with very few voices that say, "Look, uh, we had this. There was this uh, notion abroad in the land in the 1990s that China's economic liberalization would lead necessarily, inexorably." as a sort of law, iron law of, of, of physics or mathematics or something to political liberalization. And the story of the 2010s was that uh, Xi and the leadership in China said, uh, no, uh, we're, actually, we're actually going to harness our economic power to destroy whatever shoots of liberty there might be in China. Um, and now the question is, is there will we see a rise of, of, of dissidents? I mean, will there be what there was in the communist world in, throughout the 20th century uh, in the neo-authoritarian, neo-communist, whatever you want to call it, world in the 21st? Well, I mean, all due respect to Milton Friedman, I think if you look at China, that the theory doesn't necessarily play out. But if you only limit your focus to China, you're doing a disservice to his theory. Uh, in part because economic liberalism doesn't beget political liberalism, but political liberalism does beget economic liberalism. And the notion here that, you know, political liberalism and economic liberalism are intertwined, I think is, is, is um, supported when we look at states, for example, in Eastern Europe and in Central Asia that have uh, engaged in sort of a retraction, cur curtailed economic liberalism and, or uh, political liberalism and have that what followed was restrictions on uh, economic activity in order to preserve that, those restrictions on political liberty. So there is a link there. The, the problem that people, intellectuals who have, you know, this high-minded, uh, idea that uh, American liberty or that sort of liberty that's pr 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 uh, practiced in the West is not satisfactory, doesn't satisfy the soul or what have you, whatever their arguments are, is that there is no competing model of social organization anymore. Marxist-Leninism imploded. I maintain that really the only alternative theory of social organization that we've seen since was practiced in the ISIS caliphate. Everything else elsewhere is a monoculture, generally speaking a monoculture economically and by and large politically. And we haven't seen any alternative that is remotely viable being produced or theorized, much less practiced. I mean, I um, suppose the, I'll, oh, go ahead. I, I was gonna give you one other 1971 fact. 
it was the year that John Rawls published A Theory of Justice, ah. which whatever you may think of it has been studied in every you know political philosophy 101 course in the United States. It is the best-selling and most influential work of modern political philosophy, whatever that may mean. And it was a really the, uh, the peak um, intellectual achievement of modern liberalism that tried to blend political liberty with a complete commitment to equality and that equality and liberalism had to go together. And that theory studied by everyone has had almost a waning political impact across the world in real politics. It's not really the debate that people discuss anymore, not even I intellectuals. I suppose, but the theory of social justice that he articulated still has a compelling power over a, a very overrepresented faction, and particularly in the West. And John yeah. Rawls abandoned his own prescriptions when he yeah. couldn't get from point A to the equality point B that he wanted to. So it's sort of, a, it's, 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 it is the pinnacle of liberal thought is that it doesn't observe any sort of doctrine. I think part of the reason that Rawls uh, failed in that way, if, if he failed, I mean, it's hard to say that a book as central to the ways in which the elite in the world think as that uh, could be a failure is that, um, he was actually a Christian who believed in a kind of Christian eschatology of, of you know that that you could you could realize um, not that not kind of Presbyterian one, but that you could you could realize a kind of Christian goodness in the hearts of men um, and and uh, and modern secular liberalism does not have any optimism in it that of the sort that Christian liberalism brought to liberalism. Um, I mean, there's liberalism that said that we're uh, inexorably progressing to a better world, but the moral frame of a theory of justice is that we, is that we will be better because we will not only be enlightened, but we will kind of be saved by our grasp or grip of this idea. And modern liberalism now is incredibly pessimistic. I mean, it's seized by, by, by a belief in fall. I, I don't know, it's, it is Presbyterian. But Rawlsian thought was pessimistic insofar as it believed justice was a finite commodity that needed to be distributed. Only so much exists. It's, it's very much a liberal theory of, of the world that that which exists exists in its finite form and it needs to be distributed equitably in an enlightened fashion. Because if you have it, someone else doesn't. It's as true yeah, as any I, commodity as it is for the theory of justice. Yeah, but I do think that Rawls' a theory was based on the idea that people were fundamentally good and would make good choices if they knew anything, if they knew nothing else behind what he called that veil of ignorance. I think John's right here. Modern liberalism is completely imbued with the spirit of envy, destruction, tearing down enemies, identifying enemies. Um, and I think that's the biggest change since the sort uh, since the days of seventy one, where people thought, "Let's choose equality and social justice for all." But it's weird because there's alongside that pessimism is a strange, almost utopian belief in the perfectibility of systems, not individuals. Right? There's not there's no hope for these you know individuals. They must be you know brought into. Uh, enlightenment and knowledge by these secular priests that we now have have ordained but the idea of these you know this idea of equity versus equality the, the systematic 
racism that we have to combat. The system can be perfected, but the individuals are fallen is a weird sort of uh, switch, I think, from what we're talking about with Rawls. I mean, I also think there is the despair. I mean, that's the other uh, part of, of, of modern liberalism, which was very much present, by the way, in 1971, which was a deeply pessimistic time in the United States. I mean, that's part of the thing that, you know, this, a lot of what was going on here, including the outreach to China and everything else, was taking place at a time when there was a terrible crime spike. Uh, there were, you know, uh, inflation was growing, um, you know, uh, as Vietnam uh, seemed to be dragging on with no uh, sense of how it might be brought to a conclusion. Um, it was just a, you know, there was drug abuse everywhere. And, you know, it was really a horrible, sad, low, depressing moment. Um, but now we have liberalism in the grips of the idea that if we don't do something in the next five years, the planet is going to be destroyed. And and their solutions, they, they can't even articulate it in the way of, you know, if we do X, Y, and Z, it'll be great. Like, we'll not only save the planet, but things will be good. Well, by the way, so the, the planet being destroyed also goes back to Dan's piece, because as he, I think, mentioned in this, um, uh, Greenpeace got off the ground in, uh, right. in 1971 as well. Um, but, but John, yeah, that last point you make is true because while a lot of people, and I understandably um, compare um, the present leftist convulsions um, to Marxism and, and label it Marxism or kind of neo-Marxism, what it actually lacks that Marxism had um, falsely, but, but still pretended to have, was a, was a kind of scientific analysis, right? Marxism pr proposed to be a sort of scientific theory. Um, and, and, and so there's, so they don't, it's not solution or it doesn't have that illusion of, of, of solutions um, in store the way that uh, traditional Marxism does. It's, it, that's why the focus is almost purely on the destruction. Well, I mean, although Marx himself had this bizarre—I mean, you know—if you—if you—if you dig into the Communist Manifesto and stuff like that, there there was that there is that bizarre, uh, kind of almost comic utopianism, right? That uh, you achieve it, and then you're you get to be a farmer in the morning, and a poet in the afternoon, and a composer in the evening, and all that is solid will melt into air, and everything will be free and easy and and and, and wonderful. And the state will um, vanish it, entirely, right? And so, but what, what we don't have uh, in the in this current reckoning is right that that um, uh, if you if you accept that Black Lives Matter in the way that we it is described to us, and that the whole society needs to be reordered in this way, it's not clear what what will be improved exactly. That's not what's on offer. This is all reparative, right? It's all it's all bad things have been done and we need to fix them, but it's not clear what fixing them is going to achieve. And then, as I say, like if you go into global warming, which is one of the three pillars of the Biden vision, is we, you know, we have to do something about global warming. What is it that is promised at the end of the effort to, to contain global warming? I mean, I suppose what's promised is that the planet won't overheat and explode. But very little else is promised. I mean, there is green jobs, right? There's, and we'll, we'll invent green jobs. But 
that's not where the passion is. No one's saying we need to do this because we could invent millions of green jobs, right? It's, it's, uh, we are on the brink of an apocalypse. It's two minutes to midnight. It's just, it's just the nuclear freeze and, uh, and no nukes all over again uh, without any promise of what the world will be like if we follow their prescriptions. Um, but I will tell you this, as we've been talking about these changes and, and how the internet may have been given birth uh, to, in some ways, in, in 1971, uh, and as Christine said, Disney World kind of uh, began, <laughs> created a kind of mini surveillance state. Uh, that's why I want to talk to you about ExpressVPN, because, you know, we have all these internet service providers and they have, uh, they're kind of monopolies in the regions they serve and they use their monopoly power to take advantage of customers with data caps, streaming throttles, and they log your internet activity and sell data on you to other big tech companies or advertisers. To prevent ISPs from seeing my internet activity, I protect all of my devices with ExpressVPN. So what is it? It's a simple app for your computer or smartphone that encrypts all your network data and tunnels it through a secure VPN server so that your internet service provider cannot see any of your activity. If you just think about how much of your life is on the internet, Listen, every site you visit, every video you watch, every message you send gets tracked by ISPs or other tech giants who can then sell your information for profit. That's the reason I recommend ExpressVPN as the best way to hide your online activity from your ISP. You just download the app, tap one button on your device, and you're protected. And ExpressVPN does all this without slowing your connection. That's why it's rated the number one VPN service by CNET and Wired. So stop handing over your personal data to ISPs and other tech giants who mine your activity and sell off your information. Protect yourself with a VPN I trust to keep me private online. Visit expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash commentary to get three extra months free. Go to expressvpn.commentary right now. Expressvpn.com slash commentary right now to learn more. And imagine you are living in 1971 and you, you, you time travel to this moment and you hear that ad. <laughs> Is there a single word in that ad that would make the slightest sense to you? And that's, I think, the, the point, right, is that if we flash forward to 2071, whatever ad is on the holographic projection system in your pod on, the, on Saturn is going to be full of terminology and offers and things that we won't even begin to understand. But here's a point, a question I want to add, conclude with. These things that we're talking about, you know, uh, the internet and this and that and the other thing, what, what strikes me is that makes them different from the kinds of things that, Dan, you were saying futurists of today would look at, right? Machine learning, robots, this, that, is that there is in some of that vision something repellent, right? That there's some kind of human replacement, intellectual replacement. Uh, gonna, things are going to be implanted in our bodies, we're going to do it. There's something cringe inducingly frightening, like the limits of human existence are being challenged or threatened. And that's maybe where this stuff is going to fall short that, that this image of the future uh, has, cannot be, cannot make us, cannot 
we can't go into a future in which we are horrified by the changes that are being wrought. Those changes have to seem good, not bad. You know, people get uh, reparative surgery now. Uh, you know, I mean, the cochlear implant is a miracle, right? People, people look at it and you think that's a miracle. The deaf can hear. But, you know, if I'm going to be part robot, I don't know that I'm going to think that that's a miracle. Even though maybe the cochlear implant is a version of being part robot. I don't know. I really can't wait to be part robot. <laughs> just for all, you know, all intents and purposes. That's your mouth, Noah. <laughs> ocular implants. I want, I want my phone in my eye. <laughs> you know, I don't exoskeleton. think exoskeleton. I love all that stuff. You know, I don't think the question is robot versus human. I think the question, and this seems to me to be most pertinent today, is whether isolation versus community or versus lots of crowded places is the future. You know, we're, we're coming out of a long period of isolation where we've largely isolated. And um, I think a lot of the technology leads to a degree of isolation if we choose to use it that way. And to me, that's that's the big question. I have no idea whether it's um, it can be found in anything in 2021. Um, but I do, when I look at it, I don't, I don't ask, um, is this, is this technology going to turn me into a robot or take over my um, human activities? I then, I had rather think, is this going to be make, make me more likely to get out of my house or not and meet other people? Okay, Christine, as I always come to you and say, you're our resident Luddite. <laughs> I, I label so, I embrace enthusiastic. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so where do you come down on this question? Oh, I, I think Dan's right. I think um, I think what's creepy, the idea of replacing the things that we as modern creatures believe to be our human weaknesses overlooks a, a few steps, which is that some of the things that make us weak are also what make us human. So trying to replace them through say, you know, algorithmic perfectionism or, you know, machine learning or machine intelligence, these things often stumble on these extremely basic human weaknesses. Like the fact that we are inherently tribal, we are prejudiced, we are completely capable of mass amounts of self-delusion. Um, so when you create things that remind you of those weaknesses, it's best to confront them head on, not to say, ah, we've improved ourselves by ignoring them and putting a machine in its place. So I think Noah would make a wonderful human hybrid robot because he has a conscience and he's a moral human being. I can't say that about a lot of my fellow human <laughs> beings because I have the pessimism of the conservative, but I think Dan's right to think about communities. And, and this goes to one of the current debates we're having about our technology and particularly social media, which is what it's done to democracy, what it has done to our ideas of liberalism and the ability to, to talk and think and speak freely. We have seen in recent years what a lot of people warned early on, which is that with all the benefits and conveniences will come costs. And I think we have to start adding up those costs in an honest way if we're going to move forward into a world where this stuff helps us and doesn't help us destroy each other. And with that, uh, <laughs> thanks to uh, Dan Cass for this incredibly stimulating set of topics uh, that allowed us uh, a brief respite from the garbage <laughs> news uh, that is uh, that is consuming the world today. Um, uh, we will be back tomorrow with uh, with uh, sad. Sadly, we will be back to uh, ordinary punditry and dealing with Georgia elections and stuff like that. But uh, but but today we, we we got a blessed break from it. Dan, thank you again. 
And for Christine, Noah, and Abe, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.